Welcome to the Well Setting Podcast. This is episode 386. Today is September 24th, 2022. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder, money manager, and investablewealth.com. Well, the stock market's crashed once again. A lot of people have been expecting a retest of that level at around 3666. I wasn't one of them. I was one of the people that thought that the rally was going to continue. But what we'll want to watch for is when do buyers come in and at what level do they buy the dip? Because they always do buy the dip. It's just a matter of when. So will it be around that 3666 level, which was the June 16th low? Or will that dip go down below 3,600, which would put you around the long-term four-year moving average for the S&P 500? We'll have to wait and see where that new support level comes in at and how strong the price and volume action is. But again, as for me personally, I remain optimistic. We'll get into this a little bit later here in this episode. But I do think that there's a lot more fear and panic driving these prices lower than there actually is reality to support it. That's why we saw the bounce off of the June lows, and for now, I'm still holding to the thesis that we do get a bounce off of where we are. And that takes it to the question that everybody's asking me, which is, you know, we're in a stock market crash. Do you buy, sell, or hold? Well, a lot of people want to sell. A lot of people have sold. I have not sold, and that hasn't been a winning strategy up to this point. But the problem with selling is that you have to get two things right. You not only have to sell in anticipation of prices going down, but then you also have to be astute enough to buy into that dip. Because if you just sell and don't get back into the market until after all the panic has subsided, then the most likely outcome of that is that you have to buy into the market at a much higher price than what you sold at. Now, I am not opposed to selling and going to cash. My only recommendation is, is that if you sell, then you're going to set yourself up for failure unless you have a strategy as to when you're going to get back in the market. Now, as to buying and holding, well, I have been holding, obviously, very painfully. And in recent months, because the volatility has been so extreme, for the most part, I have not been adding to my positions. So I'm not buying. That doesn't mean that I don't think that this isn't a good buy point. I'm personally holding off for two reasons. One is I'm so vested in the market to begin with that I'm okay with having some cash on the sidelines. And the other aspect, and really even the more important aspect, is that I don't want to just buy willy-nilly. And so I'm waiting to see what type of leadership is actually going to emerge from the new market that we're entering. Because we are definitely entering a new transition. And it's not only a post-pandemic transition, but it's a transition with geopolitics and with technology. And again, these are not new trends. If you've been listening to me for a long time, you know I've talked about them. I anticipate them. It's just that you never know exactly how they're going to play out until they start playing out. And so while I wouldn't be opposed to just throwing money at this point into something like the S&P 500, because I do think valuations are reasonable, I would personally focus more, though, on the mid-cap index as opposed to the S&P 500, because I think the mid-cap stocks are less susceptible to all the geopolitical and the currency and the cross-border transaction issues that the big S&P 500 and multinationals are, and then the mid-cap stocks are also more stable than the smaller-cap stocks, which also wouldn't have that international exposure necessarily. So that doesn't mean I'd run out and sell the S&P 500 or I'd run out and sell the small caps. I'm just saying if I was adding more money, I would be likely to put it into the mid-caps at this point. 
let's talk about why I was wrong on thinking that the rally that we saw in August was going to continue. Now, I don't want to argue with the market because the market is the end and be all arbitrator. I thought that the rally would hold. It didn't. And so I was wrong. I was definitely wrong. The events that have taken place over the past couple weeks that have drawn us back down to those lows of June 16th are not based on any new material information or any new material change to the situation. In fact, I would argue that all the things that people are worried about have actually gotten better, not worse. And whether that be waning inflation or the consistent performance of corporate profits or the way that the Europeans are dealing with the energy crisis caused by the conflict in Ukraine. If you look at all the doomsday scenarios from any of those things that I mentioned, they never got anywhere near as bad as people were worried about. Remember in February, as it related to Ukraine, there was a lot of predictions of World War III, nuclear war. People were taking iodine tablets and looking to install bomb shelters in their backyard. And from an energy perspective, look at where that fear took the price of gasoline up to, what, around $150 a barrel. And yet today, with the war in Ukraine dragging on, into its seventh month, and yet the price of oil is now below $80 a barrel, and some think it's going even lower. So those doomsday predictions and scenarios didn't play out, and they never play out. As you've always heard me say, markets adjust and people adapt. But that adjustment and that adaptation takes place over time. And so in the short run, just like we've seen over the last couple weeks, fear can get way ahead of reality. And investors go into a panic selling frenzy. And that's what we saw happening about, I think it was three weeks ago. It started with the Federal Reserve's annual meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And Jay Powell came out about the Fed's commitment to fighting inflation and how they weren't backing off on raising interest rates and how interest rates would stay higher for longer. Well, that spooked the market. But in reality, he wasn't saying anything different than he's pretty much been saying since they pivoted sometime, I don't know, about 10 months ago. But the market got all jittery about that. And then the next week, we had an announcement that inflation came in higher than expectations. And that really spooked the market. Because that meant, oh my goodness, the Federal Reserve is going to really have to raise those rates higher and for longer. But if you just ignored the headline and you looked at the data, you would see that the big inflation number that everybody was worried about and that it came in higher than expectations... Well, it came in two-tenths of one percent higher than what they expected. Now, that's not exactly a rounding error, but it also is not a significant number. When you consider all the noise and static that goes into calculating that number, you have to ask yourself that just because that number was 0.002 higher than what the experts were predicting, well, how do you know that the experts' predictions was any good to begin with? And that's not even to say whether or not the data that they collect is accurate. And we know that it's not because they continually go back and revise it. But you don't have to be an expert to look around with your own eyes and see that things like oil and gasoline have come down substantially from their highs earlier in the year. You've heard me talk about things like copper, which peaked back in March. Now, all this is not to say that prices are going back to pre-pandemic levels. They're not. But the way that inflation is calculated is based on an increase in prices. And so for the Federal Reserve to claim victory in whipping inflation, they don't have to bring prices down. They just have to slow the rate of growth. 
And they're doing that successfully with not only jawboning and talking about how hawkish they are, but in terms of actually raising the interest rates and in having quantitative tightening with reducing the value of their balance sheet. Now, all that is going to mean less money in the market and a slowdown in growth, but it doesn't necessarily mean zero profits for corporations. In fact, again, I would argue, looking with these trends that are already in place, and specifically the trend around technology and automation, these companies that are being forced to be more diligent in how they spend and borrow money and in who they hire and how much they pay their employees, to the degree that they scale back there, they're going to put that money into buying technology that helps them be more productive. And that's why when we come out of any crisis, for example, back in 2008 or 2009 in the housing crisis, corporate profits recovered much more rapidly than the employment rate did. And that was because corporations used that crisis as a means to retrench, to get rid of underperforming assets and employees. And they came out of that crisis stronger and more profitable than they went into it. That's why an index like the S&P 500 continues to grow over time. Because the old bad things are thrown out and new and better and more efficient and more productive things are put in. Ah, but I digress. Listen, a couple weeks ago when that announcement came that inflation was higher than expected, that spooked the market. Unjustifiably, in my opinion, but it did spook the market. And then within a few days or so after that, you had the big announcement from FedEx that their sales and profitability were horrible, much worse than expected, and that they were predicting a global recession. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we're not going to have a global recession. I think that is very highly likely to be sometime in 2023, but I would not use FedEx as a gauge to the overall health of the global economy any more than I'd use a company like Sears or JCPenney's to gauge the health of the retail market. FedEx is significantly weaker than any of its rivals. Their overall ROI is something like half as much as UPS's. So what I'm saying here is that just because FedEx has a bad quarter, that doesn't mean that the whole world's falling apart. And if you're the CEO of FedEx, are you going to come out and say that you and your company are underperforming and have a horrible business model? Or are you going to blame it on the global economy? But nonetheless, the headlines talked about FedEx and a global recession. That drove the market down. And then the following week, we came out with bad news from Ford. And again, if you just read the headlines, you would be nervous and you would go out and sell. And that's exactly what the algorithms did. And the market went lower. But if you look at the actual results from Ford, they had a bad quarter, but they still were forecasting very positive and aggressive long-term results. Because the bottom line is that they're not seeing any demand destruction. The reason they had a bad quarter wasn't because people don't have money. It wasn't because people aren't buying cars. It continues to be supply chain disruptions where Ford can't get enough parts to build cars that people want to buy. So these supply chain disruptions, just like all the other issues that we've had coming out of the pandemic, they're a concern, but they are dissipating. And that's because markets adjust and people adapt. But short term, the markets don't care about that. And then all these series of scary events merged into this week's meeting with the Federal Reserve, their FOMC meeting, where they raised interest rates. And again, they talked hawkish about fighting inflation, but nothing material changed. 
They didn't raise rates 1% or one and a quarter. No, they raised rates 75 basis points. Exactly what probably 80% of the market was expecting. And yet that sent all kinds of fear through the marketplace because the dot plot came out and, you know, oh my goodness, the rates are going to be at or above 4% by the end of this year. Well, again, we knew that. We knew that they've been talking about at least a 4% rate in in the end of 2022 or going into 2023. They've been talking about that for, I don't know, maybe since April at least. So there's no new material information here. And again, that's already factored into my predictions and my models about how I look at the future market. Because this inverted yield curve that everybody's so worried about, well, the bright side, the good news of that that no one seems to want to talk about is the fact that the reason it's so steep and it is such an inversion is because the long-term rates are not going up substantially. The 10-year treasury is hovering right around 3.7 or 3.69, and the 30-year is even lower than that. That's one more example of how we know that inflation is waning. It's important to remember that the 2% inflation target that the Fed sets, it's just a self-imposed target. And they've rarely hit that in the last 20 years. That doesn't mean that it won't run that way, and it also doesn't mean that they won't just change their target. Remember, the same people in the Federal Reserve that today are telling you that rates are going to be in excess of 4% by the end of the year were the same people that a little more than 12 months ago were telling you that rates weren't going up at all. And even to the extent that they raise rates, remember that's a short-term constraint. It will have an impact on mortgages. It will have a slowdown in people buying houses and anything on credit. I mean, But that's their intent. They want to slow those things down. But higher rates and a slowdown like that doesn't necessarily mean a depression. But I can tell you that in the year 2000, when I bought, I don't know, I think it was my third house that I'd purchased at that point, I locked in a 6% mortgage rate and I was thrilled. That was the lowest mortgage rate I had ever had up to that point. And since then, it's progressively come down and we got to extreme, most likely unattainable levels that we'll never get back down to that we saw over the pandemic. But those 2% or 3% rates, that was most likely the bottom or the extreme. What the Federal Reserve is trying to do is get back to a more normal interest rate level. That's not bad for the economy. That's good for the economy. I think we'll also be supported by the continued strength and resilience of the U.S. economy. Look at all the problems in the world right now. Specifically, look at what's going on in Europe. The fact that Western Europe and specifically Germany, are aligning themselves more with the U.S. and less with Russia and China as they turn more to the United States than the challenges that they need in terms of sourcing energy and food and weapon systems will be favorable to the U.S. economy because we are a dominant producer of those products, not only for our own domestic market, but to be able to produce them in surplus so that we can export them. So yes, there's a lot of problems, there's a lot of challenges in the world, but the United States economy continues to be positioned to take advantage of those situations. So therein lies a lot of the source of my optimism. The other bottom line is, and I keep talking about it, but from a valuation standpoint, we are at a very reasonable level. And I'm not saying that the market's cheap right now. I'm just saying that it's not expensive and it's not only in line with where you would expect it to be from a long-term normalized standpoint, but it is also undervalued when you consider 
where interest rates are and even at the higher levels that the 10-year Treasury may attain if it gets up to, say, four, four and a quarter percent. Well, hey, in any case, that's my opinion. Those are my positions. Am I right or wrong? Come on back for future episodes, and we'll see how things turn out. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.